Our confessional lesson for this evening is found in the Belgian Confession since I've been here for the past, or at least uh, when I've been here in the evening, I've chosen uh, successive articles from the Belgian Confession with the intent of working through it um, article by article. And so tonight we are going to be reading Article 22 on the righteousness of faith and Article 23 on the justification of sinners. We believe that for us to acquire the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith that embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits and makes him its own and no longer looks for anything apart from him. For it must necessarily follow that either all that is required for our salvation is not in Christ, or if all is in him, then he who has Christ by faith has his salvation entirely. Therefore, to say that Christ is not enough, but that something else is needed as well, is a most enormous blasphemy against God. For it then would follow that Jesus Christ is only half a Savior. And therefore we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone, or by faith apart from works. However, we do not mean, properly speaking, that it is faith itself that justifies us, for faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness, But Jesus Christ is our righteousness, crediting to us all his merits and all the holy works he has done for us and in our place. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him and with all his benefits. When those benefits are made ours, they are more than enough to absolve us of our sins. And then in Article 23... We believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus Christ and that in it our righteousness before God is contained, as David and Paul teach us, when they declare that man blessed to whom God grants righteousness apart from works. And the same apostle says that we are justified freely or by grace through redemption in Jesus Christ. And therefore we cling to this foundation, which is a firm one forever, giving all glory to God, humbling ourselves, and recognizing ourselves as we are, not claiming a thing for ourselves or our merits, and leaning and resting only on the obedience of Christ crucified, which is ours when we believe in him. That is enough to cover all our sins and to make us confident freeing the conscience from the fear, dread, and terror of God's approach without doing what our first father Adam did, who trembled as he tried to cover himself with fig leaves. In fact, if we had to appear before God relying, no matter how little, on ourselves or some other creature, then alas, we would be swallowed up. Therefore, everyone must say with David, Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servants, for before you no living person shall be justified. Now, there's no need for me to tell you 
that the subject of our confessional lesson this evening is absolutely central to the Reformation, to the retrieval and the recovery of a properly and authentically Christian doctrine of salvation in which the Reformers were engaged. Martin Luther said that the doctrine of justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. John Calvin said that justification is the hinge on which true religion turns, and Ulrich Zwingli spoke of justification as the sum of the gospel. Now you know that justification is one of those theological terms, but when you break it down into its component parts, it literally means to make just or righteous. Now in the debates, the reformers will rephrase this to say to count or to reckon or to adjudge as righteous or just based on the exegetical insights um, into the teaching of the New Testament, especially into the Apostle Paul's letters to the Romans and to the Galatians. But at this point, the confession only wants to impress on us in no uncertain terms that Christ is our righteousness. Because we are sinners, we can never be righteous in ourselves. We're incapable. We're sinners by nature. And in fact, we do continue to sin throughout the course of our lives, even as we do grow in holiness. But in virtue of faith in Christ, we embrace Christ and his righteousness. His righteousness is transferred to our account so that it is made ours. This is not to say that faith itself is a work. Faith does not affect this. The Belgian Confession does want to make this clear. It's only the means by which we gain Christ and all his merits and holy works that he has done for us and in our place. And all these are more than enough to absolve us from all our sins. Article 23 focuses more specifically on justification. And again, the confession wants to make clear that justification is inseparable from Christ because of whom we have forgiveness of our sins. But the confession also mentions that in this blessedness that we have in him and in the forgiveness of our sins, because of him, we have his righteousness. The confession doesn't elaborate on this, but it's worth noting that the doctrine of justification is twofold. It has a double reference in which consists both a positive and a negative aspect. First, the negative aspect. The Reformers taught that justification is a non-imputation of sin. When I say imputation, again, this is a theological word which means to credit, to count, to reckon. Non-imputation of sin means that God, in virtue of Christ, for his sake, does not credit 
or reckon to our account our sin. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Psalm 32. Because of Christ, the Lord does not count or reckon or impute our sin to us. That's the negative. The Reformers also taught us that God imputes to us Christ's righteousness, which Christ gained for us both by his life of obedience to the law of God, that's his active obedience, as well as his submission to death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That's his passive obedience. Again, the confession wants us to know that Christ is our righteousness. We are justified freely or by grace through redemption in Jesus Christ. Confession labors to impress on us that this is this salvation is whole and entire. There can be absolutely nothing or no one that can be added to it. There's nothing else that can cover all our sins and make us appear before God as righteous or just. If we relied on anyone or anything besides or in addition to Christ, confession uses strong language here, we would be swallowed up. That's reason to praise God. So let's continue in our worship in the singing of number 514. Oh, love that will not let me go, and let's stand to sing. Our scripture lesson for this evening is found in the book of Genesis. We'll be reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 32. I'll be beginning at verse 22, and, and we'll be reading through 31. Listen now to the word of God. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. And then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Thus far ends the reading of God's holy and inspired 
word. How badly do you want it? This is a question that a close friend or family member may ask us when we confide to to him a dream that we may be contemplating for our lives. Implied in the question is is an awareness of the obstacles that may stand in the way of its realization. There will be hardships that test our resolve, perhaps even dangers that will derail us completely from our course. How badly do you want it? It's a question that anyone who has a dream for his life will have to consider seriously and ultimately answer lest his pursuit becomes a fool's errand, a waste of time that he can never recover. It seems to me that this question could be a subtext of this remarkable passage of scripture that we have before us this evening. We're talking, of course, about this wrestling match that Jacob and this mysterious figure who meets him at the fort of Jabbok have. The it, in Jacob's case, is a blessing. A blessing that he wants so badly that he's willing to risk life and limb to obtain it. But when we use the word blessing, what exactly do we mean? The relatively rare incidents in which it occurs in our everyday speech probably do not shed enough light on it to help us very much. Can you remember the last time you heard it used in everyday speech or when you yourself used it? Only a week and a half ago, I attended our last VBS meeting in preparation for our annual churchwide event, which begins tomorrow um, in my neighborhood. And at the end of this meeting, the volunteers reminisced about past years. They recalled a woman in her 80s at the time, who provided snacks for the children. Now, there's nothing really abnormal about this. This is a task that they assign to each, each year to at least one volunteer. But what made this woman special in the minds of these volunteers is that she didn't only provide snacks for the children, she also prepared meals for each of the volunteers who came There was a hush over the group. We were for a moment wrapped in contemplation over the extraordinary generosity of this woman. And finally, one of the volunteers broke the silence and said, bless her heart. And then another woman nodded and said solemnly, yes, bless her heart. Of course, I've heard this phrase before. But to this day, I'm not exactly clear on on what it means. But apart from this expression, we seldom have the occasion to use the word unless we're in the habit of reminding the head of our household to bless the food before it gets cold or responding to someone who has sneezed with a courteous bless you. But as you know, the word blessing has far more significance in the world of the Bible than it does in our world. Indeed, on the giving of God's blessing, our very life depends. After creating them, God blessed 
the first human pair and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. God blessed Abraham and declared all the families of the earth blessed through him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham after his return from the battle with the kings and brought him bread and wine. Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau. Jacob blessed each one of his sons, the eponymous heads of the tribes of Israel. Balak brought Balaam to curse God's people, but to his consternation, Balaam only blessed them. And the Lord commanded Moses to instruct the Levitical priest to bless God's people in these words, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Parenthetically, it's worth noting that there's a close association between blessing and God's face. Our passage means for us to see this same association when Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means God's face, right after receiving his blessing. When God adds his blessing to life, it grows, it flourishes, it thrives. Indeed, the literary critic Harold Bloom rendered the Hebrew word blessing as more life, of which the Hebrew scholar Aviva Godlieb Zornberg writes approvingly, noting that its opposite curse actually means a, a diminishment or or a restriction. Correspondingly, when God withholds his blessing from life, it wilts, withers, and dies. So it's not without reason that Jacob seeks to obtain blessing. I'm safe, I think, in assuming that the story of Jacob is familiar to most of you, but perhaps a brief review is in order which in any event, will serve to provide context for our passage this evening. Jacob is the son of Isaac, who in turn is the son of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs of Israel. Isaac is the husband of Rebekah, and she bears two sons for Isaac. In addition to Jacob, there's also Esau. Now, as a firstborn, Esau was the rightful heir to the blessing of his father Isaac, but with the help of his mother, Jacob deceived his father, who bestowed on him the blessing instead of on his brother Esau in a case of mistaken identity. Sadly, when Esau in turn sought his father's blessing, he was refused No blessing remained for him. It now belonged to his brother Jacob. Furious, Esau plotted on how he might kill his brother Jacob. When Jacob learned of his brother's plan, he fled. Worn out from the long journey, he chose a place to lay down for the night, and here he dreamed of a ladder on which angels ascended and descended. And God spoke to him in the dream. Upon awakening, he exclaimed, Surely this place 
is the house of God, and I did not know it. That's what Bethel means, the house of God. Strengthened by his encounter with God at Bethel, Jacob pressed on until he reached Paddan Aram to work for his uncle Laban. There Jacob met the woman of his dreams and resolved to make her his wife. Her name is Rebekah. Jacob came up against obstacles but did not give up after working in Paddan Aram for his uncle for a total of 20 years. Jacob prepared to return home, now a wealthy man with wives and servants and children and flocks and herds. But no sooner has Jacob begun to enjoy success than trouble plagues him again. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. We read in Job 5, No doubt paraphrasing Job, the great psychologist Carl Jung observed, nobody as long as he moves about among the chaotic currents of life is without trouble. And this is a fact of life no one will deny. The Bible is nothing if not realistic in this regard. And it seems that in life our biggest problems often often follow our biggest successes. In Jacob's case, Returning home meant confronting an aggrieved brother who was justifiably furious at him for cheating him out of the blessing to which he, as firstborn, was rightly entitled. When he learned that Esau was approaching him with 400 men, Jacob sent a message to him explaining all that he had done and become. And then he sent gifts to him in the hope of pacifying him. That's where we are now. When we catch up with Jacob in this passage before him, we find him sending his family and the rest of his possessions over the river Javik. He doesn't do this so that he might escape when he hears of the destruction of his family. Perhaps it's a strategic move to protect them in the event that Esau and his men come after him. Or if we are to believe John Calvin, perhaps because he needed total solitude to devote himself to prayer that night. Whatever the motivation, he's done all that he could. He sent his conciliatory gifts to Esau. He prayed to the Lord, his first sincere prayer, arguably, about the deadly threat that his brother posed to him and to his family. He's prepared for the worst. Now he's left alone. When we're up against it, when we've exhausted all our resources, when we've done all that we can, we know that that's when we're most vulnerable. But then we have no other recourse than to cast ourselves entirely on God. And this is a state to which Jacob is now reduced. Consider Jacob a resourceful man who, up till now, outwitted through his scheming all those who stood opposed to his interests. Now here he is, quite helpless. In this state, he's most prepared for this mysterious encounter. In this encounter, we're about to witness the making 
of a man, or maybe better put, the remaking of a man. We'll say more about this later. The reader is scarcely prepared for what happens next. This is a deliberate narrative technique, I think, for the scripture wants to make clear to us that Jacob himself was totally unprepared for it. His mind is preoccupied with his meeting Esau. Then a man suddenly comes out of the dark and attacks Jacob. Who is this man? Now this passage has generated volumes of commentary. More modern commentators suggest that it could be Jacob's own self-projection. Is Jacob wrestling with himself? On occasion, when our past comes back to haunt us, when regrets gnaw away at us, we wrestle with our thoughts until daybreak, depriving ourselves of a good night's sleep. The prospect of meeting Esau could have triggered memories in Jacob of the wrong that he did to his brother, causing him so much inner turmoil that he could not sleep that night. But the story does not tell us that he's wrestling with himself, but with a man. But is it only a mere man? The prophet Hosea depicts him as an angel of God. Hosea mentions him in chapter 12, verse 4. Jacob contends with an angel of God with prayers and tears. Some rabbinic sages thought that it was Satan or Esau's guardian angel who came to oppose him. And if this sounds too far-fetched, it's worth noting that the figure comes out against him, as it were, as an enemy to oppose his entrance into the promised land, to prevent his passage, not allow him to follow his wives and children whom he sent ahead. But as he and the man wrestle through the night, Jacob realizes that it's not a mere man with whom he's wrestling. It is God. In verse 28, we learn that Jacob has indeed been wrestling with God. Now I want to pause here to reflect on this. This is remarkable. How is it that the omnipotent God does not instantly annihilate a mere man in a fight. But God does not come to Jacob to oppose and overpower him, contrary to all appearances. What is it that he does? It's interesting to read what John Calvin has to say. Calvin finds profound spiritual significance in this contest. He finds that what is shown to Jacob in visible form is daily fulfilled in the lives of each of God's people. That it is neither Satan nor any mortal man, but God himself who wrestles with Jacob teaches us that our faith and our patience is tried by none other than God himself. When struggle comes into our lives, 
our business is really with God. Not only because we fight relying on his strength, but because he, as our antagonist, descends into the arena to try us. God is our antagonist. It is God who wrestles with us. This is most remarkable, but Calvin insists that we cannot understand it otherwise. But having challenged us to this contest, God at the same time furnishes us with weapons of combat so that paradoxically it can be said that he fights both against us and for us. While he assails us with the one hand, he defends us with the other. Despite what this language implies, the contest does not issue in a stalemate. Calvin assures us that in the struggle, God appears to be weak against us so that he may ultimately triumph in us. God's purpose in our struggles is not that we succumb to them in defeat, but that we may overcome them by his power. Jacob holds on. He stands his ground, though the struggle continues through the night. Discouragement doesn't shake his faith, nor does delay silence his prayer. He simply refuses to let go. When the man saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip so that the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob does not emerge from this contest unscathed. The man with whom he wrestles touches the strongest sinew in Jacob's body, and the muscle on which the wrestler most depends shrivels at the mere touch of his, of his antagonist and reveals to the falling Jacob how utterly futile has been all his strength and skill and how quickly this mysterious stranger might have overcome him. So we carry battle scars from our struggles, but if our own strength remained intact, we would be haughty. We would have reason to boast. We would not know that it is in fact by God's strength that we prevailed. We would not know that it is a spirit who helps us in our infirmities. We would not know that the strength of God is made perfect in our weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong. Calvin tells us the wound received and the weakness that follows imparts to us the humility that pleases God. Let me go. Could not the Almighty God escape from the clutches of this puny man? But with these words, God condescends to Jacob to honor him for his persistence in faith and prayer by which he held on to God through the dark night. I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob clings to God in his crisis, in his desperate straits, where God consents to meet him face to face. God is there with him in the struggle and consents to bless him. 
God comes to Jacob ultimately not to do him harm, but to bless him. Jacob, for his part, does not cease from his struggle until he obtains God's blessing. In what does this blessing consist? Remember, Jacob is the beneficiary of God's original blessing of Abraham. I will give you this land. I will make your name great. I will make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky. You read through Genesis that promise again and again stands under threat. In the case of Jacob, Esau is approaching him with 400 men and Jacob is afraid for his life and for the lives of his family. To bless here consists in God's acting to guard, to protect from danger, to promote life, to make it grow, flourish, and thrive. In his persistence, Jacob receives a new name. And this is important. You know that names in the Bible carry a significance that they don't in our world. To give someone a name is to designate his character, designate his identity. To be given a new name was to be given a new identity, a changed identity. What does Jacob mean? Jacob means grasper, supplanter. This is the one who takes over someone's role or place. And that name fits because that's in effect what Jacob did to his brother Esau. And that's why this mysterious figure first asked Jacob his name before giving him the new one. Jacob had to learn the meaning of his old name before receiving the new one. He had to know what he was leaving behind. He had to learn that he cannot enter the promised land as Jacob. He does not grasp it by his own wit and cunning and scheming and manipulation in which he placed his confidence. It's not by his efforts to placate Esau's wrath that he enters into it. He receives it as a promise from God who came out upon him from the darkness guarding the land by whose passport alone can Jacob gain entrance. The struggle, I want us to see, had immense significance for Jacob's life. It constitutes a turning point for him. Before, Jacob had confidence in himself. He'd never been thoroughly humbled. He'd never been in a situation in which he could not find a way out. He always trusted in his wits to get what he wanted. And in this struggle, at least at first, he shows the same determination and self-confidence. But all this self-confidence is drained from him now in this final struggle. 
his Jacob nature, that is, his inclination to grasp at what he desires and to win what he aims at, does its very utmost, but does it in vain. All in a moment, Jacob sees who he is and who it is who has met him thus. Then the man spoke, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Here marks the change, the transition from the boldness of self-confidence to the boldness of faith and humility. Jacob becomes Israel. The supplanter becomes a prince. Disarmed of all other weapons, he at last finds and uses the weapons of combat which God himself supplies and with which God allows himself to be conquered, to recall Calvin. Face to face with God, arms hanging helpless by his sides, Jacob receives the blessing from God that he discovered he could not grasp. The man who crosses the Jabbok is not the same as the one who cheated Esau and outwitted Laban and fought with an angel. He is Israel, God's prince, for that's what Israel means. Entering on the land freely bestowed on him by an authority that no one can resist. A man who learned that in order to receive from God, one must ask. Does the struggle of Jacob speak to us? Do we let this experience inform our own as God's people? It's a very comforting passage of scripture to so many who are undergoing intense struggle. We can certainly find in Jacob the visible form of what each of us must undergo as God's people. Not not one of us is spared. But our struggles are not meant to defeat us, but meant to try us, to change us, to redirect us, and to renew us. The sun rises on Jacob when he passed over Penuel. Even though he limped, he moved confident in his renewed communion with God. For it is sunrise with that soul that has communion with God. Let us too be assured that this is the outcome that God intends for his children, each of whom he will call into the arena. Amen. Well, I'll give you a chance to uh, ask any questions or make any comments about either the confessional lesson or our scripture passage for this evening. Verse 28, Chris, is a little, I don't know if confusing is the right word, 
the thing that confuses me is that towards the end of the verse where it says you have struggled with God and with man and have prevailed with men. If he, if it, if did, it didn't have that end with men and prevailed, then I could say, okay, he struggled with God, he wrestled with him, but it's he struggled with men and prevailed. I think of Lemuel, how he did this, the, the goats and the, the hurt and all that. I think about Esau. Is he acknowledging that the supplanting is is justified? That, that's confusing to me. No, I mean I, I saw that too. Um on a second or third reading, and I had the same thought. I mean, does is Esau, for example, in view here because he struggled with Esau? He's about to prevail. He goes and meets him. Um, catastrophe doesn't happen. Um, Esau is content with his allotment. Jacob now... Um, has permission, so he rightly occupies the promised land. So there's a sense in which he does prevail um, uh, with 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 men. Yeah. Right. But it almost forces his previous life as Jacob, as at least you know, as reading it like I do, that's what I always kind of thought about that. Yeah, but I think, I agree with how, I agree with, um, obviously I agree with how um, the theologians, preachers I've read interpret what's happening here because Jacob has to learn in his defeat with the angel, with God, that that's not how you live before God, grasping, um, scheming, uh, manipulating to get your way. You live before God by receiving from God in faith and in humility. And uh, I think that that's really what that wrestling match means because consider this is the promised land is not Israel's it's God's and God says throughout the scripture that if you're not faithful the land will spew you out God is standing there guarding the land he's not allowing Jacob to pass Jacob's expecting to pass he never thought this man would leap out at him and attack him This shows that, no, God is sovereign. God is in control. I know what I'm doing. This is fulfillment of the promise that I made to your fathers um, and to you, Jacob, Israel. I mean, he's he's specially favored by God, even in spite of himself. That's why it's a beautiful story, really. Um, I don't, yeah, so I don't see... I don't see in any, any. I don't see anywhere a condoning of who Jacob was before. In fact, I really see this changing of the names as a um, um, a rejection or um, a condemnation of 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 Jacob as he was. See, 
interestingly, Jewish commentators will point this out, right? They'll say, the temptation for Israel is always to revert back to Jacob. So this struggle continues throughout their history. They either live out this Jacob nature or they live out their true authentic identity as God's people, Israel. And that's that we know um, uh, I mean we, we know we know that um, that 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 was tragic for them. So. Anyone else? Yeah, less. Uh, Revelation it says, "To him that overcometh will I give thee of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written." Is that kind of saying that to the church? Did you repeat that? Revelation is uh, talking to the church. Uh, says, to him that overcometh will I give the heat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and then the stone a new name written. Yeah. Now that, I think that's the same, there's a, there's a, there's an analogous principle there, that is, um, God is reclaiming Jacob, God is redeeming Jacob. Um, Revelation tells us about this ultimate, this final, this consummation of our redemption. That's why it mentions this new name. I mean, whatever we were before gives way to this new thing that we will be. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. In verse 29, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it you asked him my name? What are the... What is the commentary? Is there, are they basically saying Jacob knew he was wrestling with God? Why would he ask? Or well, no, the commentators will say this is old Jacob again because to um, to to learn someone's name is to pin them down in the Bible, right? Um, it, um, so uh, when in, when Jesus encounters the, the demoniacs, they want to know who he is, right? And uh, I know who you are. And then Jesus silences them. And in, in, in the world of the Bible, um, to somehow name a person, to acquire their name is somehow to um, um, grasp their essence and give you a sense that you have dominance or control. And so this is, I mean, commentators, I didn't, I didn't uh, work that in, but commentators will say, here's old Jacob trying to... Uh, Trying to learn the name of his of, of his antagonist. Uh. Well, it's interesting too, Chris, because he doesn't tell him his name, and then Jacob names the place the face of God, so he knew who it was. Yeah, he knew. So, he so knew it's not he's not inquiring because he doesn't know. He knows who it is. Yeah. So that makes the point. Jake. I I bought a book recently. I've been contemplating it, um, but after this, um, after reading this text, I thought I'd go ahead and do it. But it's a it, it's, it's Jacob as, or the stories of Jacob as Christian scripture. So I want to see what this guy has to say. Because Jacob's story showcases God's grace. God seeks Jacob. Remember at um, Bethel, um, God appears 
to Jacob. Jacob knows God. Um, Jacob's still self-willed, but God still pursues him. God still gives him grace. Um, And this is another step in which God is... God is working in Jacob's life. And it's painful, right? That's how it happens. That's Calvin's point. Um, He's shaping Jacob. He's making him new um, because he loves him, because he's gracious toward him. And Jacob, frankly, is a hard hard one to love. I mean, that's that's why it's such a remarkable story. Well, if there's nothing else, let's um, conclude with... Uh, the Lord's parting benediction. Please stand. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. Amen.